0: Well, good morning. seems like we just did this, which we did. It was really wonderful. So I'm going to invite you to um, join me in a, in a moment of silence here. I'm going to sound the Tibetan bells and as a signal to just simply just notice your breathing more attentively. Let your shoulders drop perhaps. Notice your breath. Slowing the breath down, as we talk about in the meditation, helps the, slow the heart calm us, bring us to peace. And the slower we exhale, it's very, very valuable. So let's move into the silence and then I'll, I'll sing a song and say a prayer. For spirit, one spirit, is in this very room, in this very room, in this very room. And so I bring my awareness to my heart, and I declare that and decree that. To be a heart of unconditional love. To put down judgment, comparison, blaming, shaming, guilting, whatever it may be of myself or others. And I stand in that. Any of those thoughts that come into my awareness, that start to distract me, they no longer have an opportunity to find a place to land within me. This is my agreement this day. Anything that does show up of that nature, I simply dissolve it into that heart of unconditional love. To be transformed and given back to source to be renewed in some beautiful way. And so my consciousness and my my spiritual awareness and being is one of cleansing and purification. I'm a washing machine of spiritual energy. And so I just give thanks on this Christmas Day for the opportunity to spend time together and the freedom and the warmth and the remembrances and the anticipations of the gifts of one another, of the gifts that we share with each other, giving and receiving, and the gifts of Christmas radiance. And so I'm so grateful for all the gifts that have allowed us to spend this time together. Ears to hear, eyes to see, hands to touch, create, craft, hearts to be open. And so I give thanks for the knowing and the recognition that each and every one of us is pregnant with the Christ. And this Christmas season is a celebration of a further birthing of that awareness upon this planet for this i give thanks and invite you to stay with me and so it is all right well pretty good turnout for christmas morning hey did, did everybody get their presents opened already no no do you do it on christmas eve or do you do it christmas morning morning eve how many do it christmas eve after lunch you guys wait till after lunch really wow There's some discipline over there, wow. Not in my family. So how about if we stand up and greet one another and if this is the first time you've done that, it'll be okay, it'll be over in moments, but just to find somebody that you can interact with. Say good morning. Now you know that if you shake, if you shake that person's hand for longer than six seconds, that creates resilience in you. So you may wanna hang onto their hand for longer than just a handshake. And so I'm going to invite you to look them in the eye and say, Merry Christmas. Thank you for being here. You are a gift. You have love to share. You have potential to fulfill. And you have power to reveal. Merry Christmas. And so it is. Nice. Nice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I want. First of all, I want to just I want to thank some people because it's so important to, to circulate gratitude. You think it's it's not a big thing, but it is because it shifts us too. And I want to thank um, Dwayne and Barbie Lee Hemings and his beautiful daughters Taylor, Ray, and Rydell, who who volunteered over the weekend for to close up for us and to be here early for the candlelighting services and today they have they've been here to greet and to usher and to preside and to help and get glasses of water for people and myself included and where are you four there you are they're in the back but I want to just thank you so much what a wonderful they said we want this to be your Christmas gift so thank you yeah and I want to thank I want to thank Mitch Smith and Andreas who's here for all the great music we've had for the last three days. Thank you guys for being here. You know, and I I want to own my own part. I was giving you a hard time about not knowing the words of Silent Night, but I realized I don't know them either. That's why I was like, I guess I don't know this song either. Well, the heck? Mitch and I were laughing about that one. You know, we sing it every year. Why don't I know that one? There are times when I'm singing in this very room and I forget the words, I'm telling you. I'm like, boy, I'm glad these people know this song because I don't remember right now. So we we'll sing it every Sunday for the last 20 years. So it is interesting how the mind works, you know, and you think you know things and then you sort of get so busy in the, in the mind and forget. And I also want to thank uh, Ter- Darren and, and Teresa Griffin for their help with the music last night. And Darren actually sent me a wonderful story to prepare for today that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share with you because I think it's such a, a wonderful uh, example of um, the Christmas story and, and what was happening and what is, and we're so blessed to live in a time when there's so many wonderful thinkers that look deeply into how stories were written and what the culture was at the time that shaped the story and so the, I'm just going to borrow from a, a beautiful scholar and teacher and speaker and writer um, theologian by the name of Alexander Shia his last name is spelled S-H-A-I-A And brilliant, brilliant man. You can find him on YouTube. He's got his own website uh, and really speaks our language of metaphysics and how we approach the Christ. And he um, did a wonderful uh, story called The Christmas Radiance, which I'm going to call my talk The Christmas Radiance as well. Why, Why fix it if it isn't broke? But what he did is he talked about the Christmas story in the first century. And, and what was um, interesting at that time, because what the, the writer Luke, who wrote one of the four Gospels, Luke was actually Greek, and I've read Taylor Caldwell's um, story of Luke, and it is said that Taylor Caldwell could go back in the Caustic uh, Record and write right from it, and so it's a wonderful story about the life of Luke, uh, what influenced him. And in the Gospels that we have, the four traditional Gospels, Matthew, Matthew Mark, Luke, and John, There's only two places in those Gospels where there's a story of the birth of the Christ, or the birth of Jesus. And one is in Matthew, one is in Luke. And in this this discussion, he shared some of the the things, the dynamics that were alive, and why Luke wrote what he wrote about, what influenced it. And I think it's fascinating to understand some of the history. Luke, what we know and suspect, as uh, Alexander says, is that he probably wrote sometime in the mid-80s of the first century. So somewhere in that area, and Jesus was alive until the 30s. They think he was 33 when he was, he was, uh, uh, his life was taken. So about 50-year span of time, and Luke came along. But what happened in the 70s in that first century was that Judaism at that time, and see, Jesus was Jewish. Jesus didn't show up and say, hey, I got this new religion for you. It's called Christianity. Here you go. But what Jesus showed up in that, at, in that time in, at... at um, Uh, After that uh, period, and I'll get to that in a moment, Judaism had been fractured in the 70s. The Roman Empire had gone in and destroyed the temple. They had ground it to dust. And so that's around 10 years prior to Luke writing. And so what it created for the Jewish people with the destruction of the temple, the Pharisees had risen to the level of organizers. And in order to survive, and also a lot of corruption stepped in. So here were the Pharisees, they were calling the shots within the temple, but there was a lot of corruption, there was a lot of offerings that were expected, there was a lot of strong arming for people to be more generous than they probably would be, or or they would would be looked unfavorably or cast out of the tribe of of the Jewish tradition. But what the Pharisees also did, they bridged the gap where the Jewish tradition had gotten into these cultic practices... And moved it to the rabbinic practices or the practices of the rabbis. So they were beneficial in in many ways because they they helped hold the place for a while. But as as the temple was destroyed, because for the Jews at that time, the temple was the place where God lived. So if you were going to connect with God, we teach God as eminent. That has not been throughout the history of mankind. We teach God as present wherever we are and within one another. But at that time, the Jews perceived that we have to get to the temple to connect with God. And so the temple's gone. And and so what uh, Alexander Shia says is that there was that Jerusalem for the most part for Jews was a ghost town for decades, and when you understand that and then you realize Luke comes along to write a story, so I don't think personally in the what I've read and read a lot of Bishop Spung's work as well historical the, the 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 Gospels are really examples they're stories they're not historical. And so to hold that, but there's such value in the story, and to understand what Luke was attempting to do is, I think, so important. So the temple had been destroyed. The, 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 the Jews had nowhere to go to worship. The, uh, Jerusalem had become a, a ghost town. And it was a, a period of massive destruction. People felt like there was no hope. This is the apocalypse. Look what's happened. Anybody relate to that right now with what's kind of going on on the planet? There's no hope. What are we going to do? So Luke was addressing that. So, because the Jews at the time were not able to look to government or, or to the temple for help or hope. Everything was corrupt. It was terrible days. Everything is upside down. But Luke's message is more than hope. Luke says, when you think there's no turnaround, keep going. That's what he's telling you, and this is a, the beautiful part of the story. Luke writes of hope. Luke writes in the story, sets it up, and he has the angel Gabriel come and visit First visits Zachariah. Now, Zachariah is married to Elizabeth. And they're struggling to have a child. And so this angel, and now what we, how we would interpret angels is higher thoughts. So Zachariah shows up, and, and, and he, uh, the angel shows up, the angel Gabriel. And the angel Gabriel represents endurance and perseverance. There's four angels, primary angels in the Jewish tradition. There's uh, Gabriel, there's Michael, there's Raphael, and there's Ural. And Ural used to be the conveyor of, of light. He was sort of replaced by Jesus because Jesus became the personification of light. But the angel went to visit Zechariah and says, hey, you're going to have a baby. And so Zechariah represents sort of this Western mindset. He says, well, okay, and where should this baby be educated? And what rabbinical path should the baby go down? And so he starts asking all these questions. So here comes the angel of God's presence into his life and higher, at this higher thought. Angels are represented as higher thought. And so what does he do? He starts questioning the angel. And so what does the angel do? He slaps him on the hand, takes away his ability to speak, shuts him up. So you're not going to be able to speak until the baby shows up. So he's come out of the temple after he's prayed, people are asking, what happened? We know you had a vision in there, and he can't say anything. He's just doing, he's making expressions with his face and his eyes. But then the angel Gabriel goes and visits Mary. And Mary looks at him. She hears the message that you are going to be carrying this, this baby, this special baby. And Mary simply ponders the words, and she says to that angel, Thy will be done. Tell me what I must do. What is mine to do in this? And she just knows to continue with her spiritual practice. Because what she knows is if this is true, it'll happen. And I know the promise is true. And I I don't have to figure it all out. So Mary represents this grace and elegance of just receptivity. And understanding that this message has come for her and lands in her. And she just trusts it. And she knows. She, she, doesn't, she doesn't get angsty. She doesn't worry. She doesn't question. She doesn't even believe. She knows. Carl Jung, I was just talking to Mark Coleman the other day. And we were talking about Carl Jung. He'd just seen a video, a video of Carl Jung talking. People, someone asked him about, what do you believe? And he said, I don't believe. I don't believe. I know. And I thought, isn't it amazing? But when we know, we know. So Mary just knew, but it was interesting. So Mary, Mary, and Joseph, and this whole story—it's a metaphor for what was happening politically, because the temples have been corrupted, they've been destroyed and corrupted, and the government—you can't go to the government either. So part of what was happening is—and Luke was writing for the audience of Jesus at this time. So he's writing 50 years later after Jesus had died, and what he's—he's trying to impress upon them is that these are not good times. These are tough times because if you are a follower of Jesus, see, Jesus wanted to just—he wanted to just improve Judaism. He wasn't there to start a new religion. He would go to the Pharisees and say, "You guys are too busy shining the outside of the cup. You need to shine the inside of the cup." You know, it's—it's like the old Billy Crystal thing. It's—it's more important to look good than to feel good. You know, so they were shining the wrong side of the cup, and Jesus was trying to impress that, that upon them and talk about the presence of God within. Is the father within to do with the work. So very different, different perspective at all because when he's saying that nobody has to go to the temple to connect with God. It's like why would I have to go to the temple and this guy over here is telling me this stuff is available anywhere, anytime. And, so the, you know, and that was in, in opposition to the status quo. So he was challenging things but he was trying to open it up through love, through the heart. And so he, they, he had that going. And so if you were a follower of Jesus at that time in the Jewish tradition you were cast out. You're cast out of the tribe. There's a story in Luke. Luke in chapter four goes on to talk about the first time Jesus lectures. And Jesus goes to the first town. <clears throat> I know there's a, lot, a ton of Bible scholars in this room right now, but you remember the story in Luke. Jesus goes to the town, and he does his lecture in the, in the temple, and they're, they're enraged with what he has to say, that God is within, and God is personal. The Father within does the work. And they chase him out of town, and they're gonna throw him off a cliff. And somehow through his guiles, he escapes that peril. But what it is is an example of someone coming up and once again challenging the status quo and speaking against what people the common belief was and being cast out. And so that was part of the dynamic is uh, with Jesus not trying to just establish that new faith, but to reform that Jewish tradition. And in that, many of the people that did that were disowned. So what happens with Mary and Joseph, Mary becomes pregnant before she's married, And Mary was part of the priestly caste, as as, uh, Alexander Shia talks about. Mary was part of this priestly caste, as was her cousin Elizabeth. And Elizabeth and Zechariah gave birth to John, who was Jesus' cousin, who became John the Baptist. And and he was born about four months before Jesus was born. So so Mary went to visit Elizabeth, and, and both of them being in the priestly caste, which is Jewish royalty. But because she was newly pregnant and barely married. You know, the people weren't sure of the timelines. It, the, it, she represents that, that, what Luke is trying to represent in the story, the people that have been cast out of the tribe for following some of the ideas Jesus offered. So there's friction. And so what happens when Mary decides to, to give birth to this baby without question, because she knows this is mine to do, she starts to separ- separate herself and give up her, her privileged Jewish heritage she's no longer honored as one of the the special ones in the in the tribe and so her and Joseph both become outcasts from the Jewish tradition and they travel they, they spend about three or four months with Elizabeth and then they travel home with Elizabeth and Zechariah they travel home where they get home and they find out that they, there's a, a tariff there's a tax that's being uh, placed upon all the people of the of the area and so they travel from Nazareth to Bethlehem. But because they've been cast out by the tribe, and now, as you know Herod in this story, Herod decides that the firstborn of every family should be killed as well, because at that point in time, the government didn't like these followers of Jesus because they were passionate and they were creative and they were on fire and they didn't want any of that. They wanted everybody to be really gray. Look, we, we have beat you down to the point where you are nothing. There's nothing left. So don't start getting all wound up about some new idea because that doesn't work. The government didn't want that. And so they had to go there disenfranchised from family but also concerns of disenfranchisement from the government which is a, a perfect example of what was going on for people at that time and with Jesus. So what he's done is he's taken what's happening culturally and she's he, created this, this narrative about Jesus and, and Joseph and the birth of the Christ and the consciousness it requires to give birth to that. So it's all metaphor, but it's also important to understand it. And so uh, they go, and and so they've been cast out, and because they've been cast out, they had nowhere to go. They get to Bethlehem. They have family and friends in Bethlehem. They can't go there because they've been thrown out of the family. What the Jewish tradition would say at that time, if you go against the tribe, we will ritually kill you. That's what was happening with Jesus in the temple when they chased him out. We will ritually kill you. And so Mary and Joseph are on their own. But Mary is so, she knows. She knows what she must do. And so what Luke is pointing out here is no matter how dark it looks and how much you've been beaten down, keep going. Just keep going. That's the story of Mary and Joseph. See, Luke wants us to know and to have Mary's sense of knowing that God's promise is real, and she trusts it. If you look in Scripture, Scripture is full of God's promises. I promise you a future. So the journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem, because of the rejection of family, no family to go to, no place to go they find a place to give birth, which is the lowest of the low, which is with the animals. It's filthy in there. Anybody ever been in a barn? It's filthy in there which is another example of how low they had to go. And they had to go into the darkness. It's dark in there. And the other piece of it, that, so baby Jesus is born in this stable. And, and, and uh, the, the first people in the story of Luke to hear about this, where the announcement is where another angel shows up, and this time Luke doesn't say what angel it is, but it's, another, it's a higher thought. It's to the shepherds. The shepherds are another marginalized group because they're they're out there in the fields. They smell terrible. You can tell when a shepherd's coming through town 10 minutes before they get there because you smell them coming. They're filthy. So what Luke is trying to emphasize is this, this Christ is born in the worst of conditions, in the lowest of conditions. But if we look at Alexander Shia was in Australia for three years, and he said he came back to California finally after three years there, and he said it's so strange because in December, that's their summer, and it's sunlight all the time. But he said to come back to an environment where there's actually darkness, the Christmas lights are so radiant, they're so beautiful. So, so the, 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 the Christ is born in the darkness in the lowest of low times. And what Luke is trying to tell these people, because he wrote for the people, the people that, that cared about Jesus and what he had to offer. And Luke was trying to, I mean, that's why it's one of the Gospels. But what he was trying to do is take what was happening politically and give people an example of what's possible. And he used Mary and Joseph as that. No matter how low you get and how dark it gets, we are all pregnant. The message is that we are all pregnant with the Christ. Each and every one of us. And when it looks like it can't get any worse, just like Mary and Joseph did. They kept going. Family rejects you? Keep going. Government rejects you? Keep going. Because the new day is dawning. So those two wounds, the rejection of family from the Jewish tradition and the emperor and the emperor, those two rejections, they kept going. We are all pregnant with the Christ. Mary's an example that if you act as if Christ, if you, if you give birth to the Christ, it'll take you the rest of the way. And that's that soul work. That's that spaciousness. Last week I read to you from uh, Synchronicity about the, this idea of emptiness, spaciousness, trust, grounding yourself in the truth of your being, expanding your heart capacity. It's truly how Jesus walked, or his message was to all of us. And so here was Mary that lived in that place. A new radiance is opening up, and it starts in the darkest place with the lowliest people. And just when you think you can't go anymore, that's just before the turnaround. The last battle is always the toughest one. The last battle when you make the transition and you break through that 's where it 's birthed, the Christ, just like Mary, so in metaphysical teaching we 're all characters in the Bible, each and every one of us. the significance of the lights of christmas they 'd not be so radiant if it were not illumined in the darkest part of the year. Is that interesting how collectively we 've gotten into this tradition because we know I mean they know historically that Jesus was not born in Bethlehem, they know that Jesus was not born on the twenty fifth of december i mean there 's been enough research to know, and there are people that That I could say that too. That say, don't bug me with the facts, because I know and and I bless them and let them have that. But historically, many of these things are metaphors. And how it lined up with the darkest part of the year for this birth. So Mary's story and Joseph's story is our story. And when it becomes the work, the darkest and the lowliest, all we got is the shepherds hanging out with us and the and the smelly animals. It's a good sign. The turnaround is coming. We are all pregnant. With the Christ. So on this beautiful Christmas day. I hope you understand that. Wherever you are. If you're at a point in transition. The the turnaround is imminent. And you don't have to be there. For the turnaround to be imminent. But that is the message that Luke was trying to convey. Trying to provide hope for people that had no hope. They truly felt it was the end days. They felt it was the apocalypse. Temple gone. Pharisees corrupt. Government corrupt. You know, when we can point out in the world and see those very same things now in our world. But it's so important, I think, for all of us to stay the course and keep going. Because what else are we going to do? So it's a wonderful thing. It's an inspiring story when you read it in the context of historically what was happening and how powerful that is in each and every one of us pregnant with the Christ. So blessings. Merry Christmas. We'll see you in the new year.